but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Body Serve. This is episode 84. 84. Year of your birth. It is. Year of the book as well. <laughs> or, or well. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's a very important year. Sure is. I believe Tina Turner's uh, Private Dancer are, came out that you year. You are absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm very happy to be back. How about you? Yeah, I'm. I'm happy to have had a little bit of a break because we needed it. Because this is going to be a busy stretch of two weeks again for us it is i mean it's it was actually only two weeks it felt to me to be much longer uh but the grass season short as it is is underway there's really only one more week until wimbledon mm -hmm. so it's a very quick part of the year it's hard to get a gauge on players levels because many of them don't even play warm-ups for wimbledon this is kind of like a bonus episode because we're going to do a Wimbledon preview episode as well coming out this week and we'll do our usual mid Grand Slam episode and then our wrap up episodes. There's including this one four episodes in the next two weeks. That's that's quite prolific. Next three weeks. Okay, fine. Like water it down a little bit. Why <laughs> okay, don't you? But... <laughs> and big thank you to listener Dima Ayash who suggested that we debut a new segment. And it's going to be called Girl Bye. And do we or do we not have some lovely candidates for that this week? Mm -hmm. I mean, they made it so easy on us this right? week. Right. It was like, well, I guess we should limit it to one. But there are two people who will be Girl Bye'd this week. Yeah. So thank you for the suggestion. And may I suggest a segment called I Said What I Said. <laughs> and it'll just be me defending like mispronunciations I've done or times when I've been really mean and felt a little bad afterward. A little bad, really? Well, not bad at Do all. Do you have really. that emotion? No, just shame. Because <laughs> that's not an admission of guilt. Do you like grass? Do you like the grass season? I found myself asking myself this question a lot the last two weeks since we've been off. I like Wimbledon a lot. Mm -hmm. It It's almost... Like, almost my favorite major. But I like the U.S. Open better just because the scheduling and the night matches. The U.S. Open is your favorite? I do, yeah. And it's more oh. of a, func a more a function of the fact that we can watch it, watch so much of it. And there's night matches, and it's exciting. Would it be my favorite one to go to? Probably not. So the, there's two questions there, because that's mm -hmm. something else that I've been thinking about, too. After the French Open, I saw a lot of people doing polls as to what the most prestigious slam is or what their favorite slam is mm. two different things but there was a lot of discussions as to how to rank the slams and i didn't really know how to answer it. the u.s open would probably be my third or fourth really yeah because in the u.s open works in theory <laughs> right in that night matches yay but the scheduling is always shit so we get shit matches and it's not exciting for me and it feels very drawn out there which kind of matches the expanse and the waste of Arthur Ashe Stadium. 
<laughs> you know, and the fact that it's built on waste. <laughs> it's it's a lot of pomp without the circumstance for me. The U.S. Open. Well, maybe you've just been underwhelmed the past few years. The last decade, really. The, okay. Like I loved the U.S. Open growing up for the night matches. Mm. Like I remember watching Agassi at night on Arthur Rash when Arthur Rash was new. That was so exciting. But it just hasn't hasn't done it for me lately. I've grown to really like the French Open. That might be my number one known. That's probably uh, with a huge bias because I'm a Nadal fan. Mm-hmm. And we get this huge lead up to the French Open every year. And it culminates in that. Whereas the Wimbledon, while I love it, and you know, I'm a, a British subject by birth. <laughs> like, I'm inclined. And, and by naturalization. Yes. I'm inclined to be partial to the tradition and the buttoned upness of Wimbledon. The rules. Yeah. I, you know, I like rules. But the, the boom boom nature of grass, when it came packaged with lots of volleying and a diverse skill set from the players, that was more exciting for me. Mm. But now where it's just like, we're getting, say, Isner and Mao a couple of years oh, ago. Like, Lord. that shit is just blow my brains out type stuff, you know? <laughs> I just, I feel like Lindsay and Venus in 2005 solidified Wimbledon as my favorite tournament as the place where, the only place where that kind of magic happens. And then, then, when I heard Serena's and Petra Kvitova's booming serves and forehands under the roof, that especially cemented it for me. There's nothing like that in tennis. Some of the best tennis I've, I've seen in the last decade was Venus and Kvitova a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. Like, that type of tennis is where it's at. You know, that's Wimbledon at its best. Right. But we don't, we don't get that enough for my liking. So, okay. Well, enough about Wimbledon. It's, we're not quite there well, yet. Well, yeah, yeah. But like, quickly, wh- how would you rank them? Oh, well, the French is my least favorite. Oh. And I don't hesitate. And that's in spite of Rafa's amazing record there. It's just, uh, it's just not, not my favorite. The Australian and US are, I mean, I don't know. I love Australia. I think the only thing holding it back for me is that I get to watch more of the US Open. So that's a selfish reason. So one, two, three, four, what are they? I don't know. US, Wimbledon, Australia, French. Okay. For me, French, Wimbledon, and Australia tied, and US Open last. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a (laughs) cop-out. In terms of which ones you want to go to, Wimbledon is my number one. Number one is Wimbledon, and then, of course, I want to go to Australia so badly. Wimbledon, number one, French Open, number two, and then Australia, and then US Open. I mean, we live so close to the U.S. Open. What has stopped us yeah, from going I mean, till we'll, now? Yeah, I mean, we'll get there eventually. Yeah. So you asked me about, do I like the grass season? Uh, yeah, I like the grass, but I find that it flies by so quickly that I, I kind of miss it every year. I, except for Queens. Like, I, I keep up on the Queens results, but the rest of it just happens so fast. And you're in that post-Grand Slam malaise. <laughs> mm. You're a little bit tired. Uh, yeah, just like blink and you miss it. Well, unfortunately for you with your work schedule now, Queens and Hollow were both on TV the entire week right, last week. Right, but it's, I'm at work the entire time. I can only follow scores, you know. I like the grass. I wish we got more of it. 
I do not like that we are a week out from Wimbledon and everything is a crapshoot as to who could be winning this tournament. It's a crapshoot to begin with, but like, as you said, so many players will not have played competitive matches on grass before they show up. And so like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they added an extra week that it's crazy to think there used to be only two weeks yeah. before. And like, could you not remove two or three weeks of hardcore tournaments? They're everywhere on the schedule, but it's just, it's not going to happen. But you know what? I'm here for the so-called grass court specialist, because we've talked about how there's no longer a clay court specialist in tennis, mm. but we still have grass court We do specialists. We have Allison Risk. We have Gio Muller, who just won his second title. Mm-hmm. We have Feliciano Lopez, whose best surface is grass, yeah. and he just won Queens, which was one of the biggest tournaments of his career, right? Well, yeah, the biggest, really the biggest win of his career. And he's playing the best tennis of his career at 35. Small sample size to say that, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> Two tournaments? Well, I mean, that's what he says. Oh, okay. And how can you argue it? Argue with it, really? Like, he's 9-1 on the two tournaments in grass. He's beaten, well, at Queens. Like, check this out. He beat Stan in his first match, then Shardy, Berdich, and Dimitrov, and then beat Chilich in the final after saving match points. Chilich has been low-key playing very well the last couple of months. Yeah. And this is obviously a surface that suits him well, and really he has a chance to, to win the biggest title on the surface with his game. Feliciano was run up to Puy in Stuttgart last week, and then he comes back the following week and beats all those players you just talked about right. to win Queens. So as far as dark horses go for Wimbledon, he's right up top of the list to start. Yeah, I mean, really, no one has had that kind of preparation for Wimbledon this season. And he actually was in the final in 2014 and lost to Dimitrov in three tie breaks. After holding a match point. That's the final of Queens. Yes. Okay. In, into the, not Wimbledon. <laughs> in 2014. Now, speaking of Dimitrov, I kind of wonder what we should expect from him. I guess there there is a little bit of like a ray of light going on. He, you know, he's playing better than he did on clay. This should be a surface that suits his game very well. He's a former semifinalist at Wimbledon. I'd like to see him play well because I like his game and I, I enjoy him. Who can tell what's coming well, with Grigor at this point? True. <laughs> We've been through this before. Fool me once, fool me twice. At this point, fool me ten times, I'm a fucking idiot, right? <laughs> <laughs> is that how it goes? <laughs> the big news. We've had quite a few comebacks. Vika is back. We can start with her, right? Yeah. She came back in Mallorca, won her first match over two days. She was playing Riza Ozaki, right? Mm. And Ozaki had to come back the following day and try and serve the match out at 5-4 in the third set. Didn't happen. Vika came back and won before losing quite easily to Kanya in the second round. Right. So this match lasted two hours and 45 minutes. Over two days, Vika saved match points. I think it has to be seen as a, a big success for her first tournament back from maternity leave, right? She looks good, too. Physically, she looks good. Right. And what I like is that fearlessness, that competitive spirit is there. Like, she's aggressive. She's so aggressive on the return that sometimes you're wondering, like, really? 
but but when it works like she scares people it, it it really works and so i'm i'm glad that that's still there like she is so hungry we talked about it a lot when maria was coming back and i i told you to check your expectations there weren't expectations in a good way on your on your part <laughs> like you were hoping for maria to win but you were saying like i wouldn't be surprised if maria won the whole tournament in stuttgart i'm like girl to expand on that, we have Maria coming back after so much time off. She's out for the grass season because of injury. But there's her, there's Vika, there's Petra. Three big name players coming back after long periods off. Mm-hmm. And folks are just expecting them to win tournaments left, right, and center. Like, that is not reasonable. Right. Yes, Petra just went and did the thing. Well, sh- <laughs> shall we? <laughs> she just won her second tournament back. I mean, Petra just unloaded. Just unfurled her weapons and took the grass by storm in Birmingham. But so, now she's expected to be the front runner at Wimbledon. Right. And that's just not and, a proper expectation, a realistic expectation to have of her, especially after all that she's been through. The thing is, she still doesn't have total feeling in her dominant hand. Uh, she said she can't fully make a fist, right? So the hand is not back to normal, but I imagine that it's not hurting her to play. Like, her doctors have cleared her to play. Well, she said after winning that she she played without pain, which was right. good. Which is important, but you wonder, like, will the hand regain full mobility? And I've heard no, but I... Who knows? I can't be sure that that's correct. Will it matter? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if she plays like that, probably not. Looking at the way she played in Birmingham, it would be silly to count her out at Wimbledon. Like, you have to see her as a contender. But it is dangerous to say she's the odds-on favorite because she's a former champ. I mean, Mm. she's been through a a trauma. The one thing that's in her favor is that Wimbledon, of all the four slams, is the least physically taxing. Right. Especially if you you play like her and you can end points so quickly. Mm -hmm. You have noted here on our agenda that it's satisfying to see her play like this after being called emotionally fragile throughout her career. Well, there was a question mark after that because I... I just wanted to talk about it. Okay. She is somebody who, I mean, she was nicknamed Petra with a little three. Is yeah, there any way to uh, say that phonetically? Or I don't know. <laughs> because she went to three sets all the time. Yes. And won many of them. Mm-hmm. But she, we were even talking about this, I think probably last, the end of last season, where she's a player that we can't expect her to be dominant week in and week out. That she seems to have accepted that she's someone who will go on streaks. Yeah. Right? And this I thought you were going to say go on strike. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this was before she was attacked this winter. But, of course, like, she has been derided as fragile or as not possessing that kind of competitive will that the, the most dominant players have, even though she's a supreme talent. And I think that something like this shows how unfair that is. Many people would not be able to put that behind them to come back like this. No, and I wonder, and I we said this when this whole horrible thing happened, that I hope that she's also taking care of the mental and emotional side because she suffered a physical trauma. But this is, I mean, this is something really horrible to happen to anyone, uh, to be attacked in your own home. I can't imagine sort of the loss of security that 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 gives you. And so she's talked a little bit about how she was 
kind of afraid to leave the house at first. And she would look around bars and restaurants in her hometown and, and wonder, is that person out there or, or just feel unsafe? And of course, who wouldn't, right? So I'm hoping that she's taking care of herself emotionally as well, because being a, a tennis player isn't easy by itself without all that stuff. She played Ash Barty in the final, who herself has developed a reputation as being exceptional on grass, more so than other surfaces. Right. She's got great volleying, big inside-out forehand, seems to be unnatural on the grass. She uh, made a final on grass last year in her comeback season. Yeah. And now this was her biggest final of her career and pushed Petra to three sets. Right. Won the first set. She just has so much upside to her game. She's still very young. And uh, what I like is that like she's close to the ground. She's small, but solid. Like There's a lot of power coming out of that body. She's compact. Know? Yeah. I love the relationship with her and Casey Delacqua. They have this mama bear cub thing going on that's just the cutest thing ever. Yes. And when they won doubles in Birmingham, Casey's son runs onto the court and gives Mama a hug, and then she immediately passes him off <laughs> to Ash. Yeah, that was so cute. Oh, my God. Like, they're family. It almost made me want to have kids. Almost. No, you're lying. <laughs> <laughs> so, Barty and Delacquo beat Chan and Zhang in the final of doubles, which was, what, like a little while after the women's final? Yeah, suitable rest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to me, there's nowhere to go but up for Ashley Barty. The clearly like the time off from tennis did her well. She seems to have recaptured some enjoyment and some passion for the sport, right? The other thing that happened last week was that Roger Federer won his ninth title in Halle. He sure did. Which, ah, Lord, I'm struggling to I have positive feelings to tamp about down this. The bad mind is that what you? Yes, mean? <laughs> because. You can't separate Federer from his fans. You just can't. (laughs) Okay. And these are some of the same people who were out here in these tweets (laughs) deriding Nadal's La Decima because of a so-called weak draw. Right. And paying no mind deliberately to the quality of tennis that Nadal was able to play. Mm -hmm. Like the next level crazy top-notch stuff like improving his game in ways that we hadn't even seen before deploying different skill sets that we hadn't seen before Mm -hmm. right all that gets ignored because easy draw then roger comes and people are like oh my god just two more for his own decima like okay (laughs) in hala and then come to find out come to find out that federer has not not even just beaten but hasn't even played a top 10 player in Halle in 10 years. Really? Really. Interesting. A lesser person would say, well, that diminishes his achievement. But I'm not that person, am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be so immature. <laughs> when I was more of a hater, uh-huh. back before we had a podcast and everything, I used to deride Federer playing Halle because... The premier grass court event is Queens, obviously, and he chose to play in Germany instead, which had a much weaker draw. And that's fine. Like, the thing is, now that I'm older and more mature, mm-hmm. I, 
I don't second guess his decision because it's that money girl. Well, no, but but also the point is to get yourself ready for Wimbledon, which is the real prize yeah. of this part of the season. Mm-hmm. And that was his process. It worked extremely well for him. Uh, he clearly doesn't need to play Queens to get ready for Wimbledon. So fine. But like, don't say that this is this is not La Decima. Mm-mm. If it were to happen, it would be Una Decima. <laughs> <laughs> It would be 10 of something, it would but be it a, wouldn't be the 10. It would be a quarter decimal because it's a 500 level event, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> the thing is, like, you just can't, you can't sit here and say that Nadal's tournament wins, his 10 tournament wins at three different tournaments are, are not important because he had a weak draw in one of them. Mm-hmm. We also or, got a lot of feedback from people on our last episode or Roland Garros recap episode a thanking us for doing what we not we don't normally do in our podcast in terms of giving some technical analysis. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's not our thing, but it was that's striking for us in Nadal's play. And I guess easy for us to identify because we followed his career closely. Just right. to, you know, point out the ways in which he excelled at Roland Garros that, you know, manifested in him playing so well. Because apparently <clears throat> because a lot of of what was being written and talked about Nadal after that was either a dismissive in the ways that we talked about or B, you know, Nadal just blowing people off the court. Right. You know, there's, you know, muscle clad power Nadal, just brute force destroying everybody. When in fact, there's a lot of strategy and skill and artistry and beauty in his game as well. This is something that's come to the fore again with Nadal winning so much and, Federer as well in 2017. 12 plus years on into their careers together on tour and winning so much, we are still being force-fed these narratives of classy Federer and brute force Nadal when they win events. Right. It is, it's unbelievable to me that people are still on this bullshit. I can't tell you how many times after Hala I saw headlines with Classy Federer. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's just like, do we... Why are you talking down to us? We don't need binaries to understand things. Right? Like, we can grasp concepts. It's disrespectful to both of them. Right. Not just Rafa, because Federer has put in a lot of work to get back to where he is. Right. And, and just because it might not look as physical as Rafa... It's very difficult. <laughs> and there are aspects of Roger's game that are just brute force. There are times at the end of five set matches where he needs to hold serve and he slams down a bunch of aces and unreturnables. Like that's that's power tennis. That fifth set against Rafa in Australia, that was brute force. Yeah. Or that was look, not classic. Look at the oh nine well, oh nine. Yeah, Wimbledon final against Andy Roddick. Like you knew that Roger was gonna hold serve. And it wasn't because he was slicing and dicing and, you know, doing ballet over the court. He was doing what needed to be done to win, which is serve out of his mind. So it's just, like I said, why are you treating us like we can't understand concepts? Like someone can be more than one thing at the same time. I realize it it sells books, it sells magazines, whatever. But like, it's it's just not interesting at this stage of their career. Certainly not to us anyway. <laughs> right. I... I don't know. 
So Federer destroyed Sasha Zverev in that final. I was a bit surprised by the result. I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, fine. It's interesting to me that Zverev won the Rome title on clay so thoroughly and uh, didn't really put up much of a fight against Federer on grass. But uh, again, it's Federer on grass. He's in a renaissance, a late career renaissance. He's possibly the best who ever played on grass. I don't want to say definitely because I just don't know. What would these discussions look like if Bjorn Borg didn't retire like, what, 25, 26? Right. Yeah. At that time to win the French Wimbledon back-to-back four times in a row, right? I think he did it. Like, that's that's crazy. The Channel Slam was very, very difficult back then. It's difficult now, but they've added a week. You know, a mere week. But the surfaces also play differently now. Right. There's a lot of talk about the homogenization of the surfaces in the last decade. So there's that. But still. And you also had very dangerous clay court specialists way back then. Mm-hmm. Borg himself lost to Adriano Panata at the French Open. As recently as the mid-90s, Sergei Bruguera. Right. Mooster. <laughs> yep. So, despite what we how we joked about Una Decima, the ninth title at Halle for Federer is an amazing achievement. There's there's no taking that away. Like I we are do not let our fandoms get in the way of respecting that kind of yeah. Like why why can't both their accomplishments be celebrated at this point? Right. The pettiness, man. The pettiness is just. Ugh. I'm not gonna say I kind of wish we went back to like two years ago because absolutely not. <laughs> I'm happy with both of them. Winning. Well, yeah, because that would be bad for Rafa too. <laughs> but it's just brought out the worst in these people all over again. We mentioned grass court specialist Gio Muller, who won Serto and Bosch, which I had to look up because I look at that word and I'm like, what is that? But when it's spelled out for you phonetically, it makes sense now. Yeah. But without that help, it looks like mercy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Muller won his first title in his mid-30s earlier this year, and this is his second title, and he excels on grass, as everyone knows. He beat... Zverev in the semifinals, beat Karlovich in the final, and then he reached the semifinals of Queen's Club the the following week. So he's having a, a hell of a stretch as well. Yeah, I mean, Zverev is obviously going to be something special. Yeah. Like, he played well on the clay, he's playing well on grass again. You think, you, you asked me like, well, you didn't ask, but you said, you know, you were surprised that he lost so easily to Federer. I think it was, what, 3-1 and one or something like that? Yeah, so I think he lo- he won three games or something. And there's still a learning curve for him in certain situations. Right. Yeah. Within tournaments, there's learning curves. Against different opponents, there's learning curves. And at some point, perhaps like it did for Federer in 2004 or 2003, it's just going to click. And that's when shit might get scary. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, like... Keep that at bay for a while. <laughs> I don't I don't need a young in like blowing everybody off the court yeah. for the next decade right now. But the thing is, the old guard is still so good. When Federer was coming up, they weren't. That's true. Sampras was on the way out. Agassi was winning a lot in Australia, still playing really well, but And playing sporadically too. But as far the as the, the greats of, of that era, there was Hewitt and Agassi Safin here, you know, obviously here and there. Right. But I mean, we're seeing 
a whole generation practically came and went. The Raonic Nishikori generation, who may never, who may retire without winning a slam because these guys are still so good in their early to mid 30s. In the women's side of Serto and Bash, Kantavite won, defeating Vikliansova. Sure. In the final. And Kantavite, she's another one on the come up. Like, you see who she beat this year. She beat Kerber, Mugurutha, Mirjana Lucic Baroni. Watch out for her, really, at any major. Donna Vekic beats mm-hmm. Johanna Kanta in the final of Nottingham to win her second WTA title. Okay, this one surprised me. Look, she's been playing better the last six months. She has. I'm not saying she hasn't, but like she's she's always had a lot of promise, and she hasn't been living up to the promise recently, mm. but... I'm very surprised that Kanta did not win. She's still very young. People forget that. Well, people don't forget well, that. <laughs> Stan sure didn't forget it. <laughs> and the writers of Donna do not forget it. But I mean, put it that way. I had forgotten okay. that she's still so young. And let me tell you, I am all in for Vekic winning shit right now because I am just sick of people mocking and deriding her based on their feelings towards Stan in that whole situation, with them being together. People think that he's disgusting for purportedly leaving his wife or Donna Vekic, who mm. may have been 17 or younger at the time. Whatever. Like, we don't know the exact details of how that went down, but people feel some kind of way about that. Yeah. And that's their prerogative. Might even be their right. And they may be right about it. I take the position that it's not my business. But... They've then taken that as an opportunity to degrade and mock and vilify her, which I find repulsive. Mm. And whenever she gets these wild cards and they're like, well, mm, that looks a little bit fishy. Why is she getting that wild card? Is it because Stan said I ain't showing up unless she gets the wild card? That, again, is something you don't know for sure. Yeah, that's fair. You know, and let me tell you, like, if I'm in her position and I'm dating the world number three, who is a three-time Grand Slam champion, I'm taking advantage of those situations. <laughs> I sure am. I am agnostic on Vekic. I, re- I am not interested. I'm not going to take up for her, but I'm not going to to demean her either. It's not about taking up for her. It's about pushing back against the fuckery. Okay. Because you can't then call yourself a feminist and be talking about WTA this yay and picking your spots to be woke and conscious about all this shit. And then you're going to be doing nasty, underhanded, vile shit like that. Right. Like, that's not cool. So good for her. That's all I'm going (laughs) to say about that. (laughs) Back to Mallorca, which where Vika made her her triumphant return. Gurgis stormed through the draw just destroying opponents mm-hmm. got to the final lost to Savastava in three sets and Savastava seems like someone who can play on all surfaces as well uh she was she was on the long list i think of french open favorites mm-hmm. <laughs> i i mentioned her in, in like my 15 and I, unfortunately i did not mention ostapenko so <laughs> stupid me but uh th- she's one to watch and gurgis is someone who i've always liked watching she just has a lot of power She's when she game. when she puts it together. It's really uh, pretty impressive. So that covers the minutia of the tennis results. The minutia. 
Yeah, is that did I use that incorrectly? Well, I bet the players don't think it's minutia. <laughs> it's uh, you know, there was a lot to cover over the two weeks we were gone, and we we went through it. We got you up to speed, <laughs> and now we're gonna segue more into our wheelhouse. Okay, shall we say? Can you lead us off with some news about Mr. James Blake? Sure. So, James Blake has withdrawn his suit against the New York Police Department in exchange for a legal fellowship to uh, a review board. So, it's called the Civilian Complaint Review Board. And this board will appoint a fellow, a, a legal fellow, to basically help people navigate the complaint system against police, push for stronger investigations basically streamline and be sort of a citizen advocate in the case where police are being investigated or you want to make complaints about police misconduct. Remind the listeners again what this case was about. Yes. So two years ago, uh, I think it was during the U.S. Open, James Flake was standing outside of his hotel in Manhattan and was tackled, cuffed, and arrested by a plainclothes policeman who mistook him for someone who was committing credit card fraud or something. He he matched the description. I can't imagine what that description said. Bald and black. Oh my god. Right? It's so like it I... was it was an embar- obviously an embarrassing misstep for the NYPD who was out here killing black people. Luckily for James, he was just tackled and handcuffed. But it the whole thing showed you who he is because he didn't let this go. He decided to file suit. There was an investigation. The police officer was disciplined. But he decided rather than pursue the case in court, getting a legal settlement, like a settlement in... A civil settlement. Right, a civil settlement. He doesn't need the money. Like, he's a person of means. So he actually leveraged this into something that will help people in the future which will hopefully create institutional change, will make it easier for people to stick up for themselves against police when they feel they've been wronged. And I think that just says so much about who James Blake is as a person. He's smart, he's ethical, and he actually cares that the system itself changes. He doesn't need, for his own peace of mind, he doesn't need to see that police officer put behind bars. Not to say that if someone chose to go that route, that that would be wrong mm-hmm. because one would be warranted to want to see that, to want to see justice be done. But he, this he, is a different kind of justice, right? A justice that's more far reaching and one that will serve a lot more people. Right. And for someone of his socioeconomic status, he's in a position to do that, to push for that kind of change. He has the clout to be able to say, you know what? I'm going to withdraw my suit, but you're going to do this, this, and this bill de Blasio. And the mayor announced this, and it's called the, uh, I think, the James Blake Civilian Fellow. Some It's named after him, basically. <laughs> so I just want to say kudos. This is the rare, the very rare instance where something approaching justice has been served. Justice hasn't been served. Because... Or even just good news emanating from one of these instances with right. black people and the police. And perhaps it's... There's also a PR element. The NYPD is trying to rehab its image or whatever. But, I'm sure that's a But point. if this makes real change for for anyone, 
who has been abused by the New York Police Department, then that's a good thing. It gives me no pleasure to talk about this next issue. Because while we gave you the good news with James Blake, we now have to bring you the bad news with Venus Williams. Again. Mm -hmm. Who clearly is just not at all involved with social media. (laughs) Because certainly should have caught wind of what was being said the last time she said All Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And in this big multi-page spread in a magazine, Venus doubles down, saying that she doesn't see color and that she believes Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter. Etc. Etc. It was such a lovely article until (laughs) that little bit at the end. It just like, my God. (laughs) Yeah. And... We're not here to give Venus a free pass because we like Venus slash love Venus slash worship Venus, as one should. (laughs) (laughs) But this is a serious blind spot for her. And one that's particularly disappointing because one would think that maybe her life experiences would position her to see things differently. Um... Uh, I don't, I don't know. I, the last time it happened, we were both willing to say, oh, you know, Venus doesn't really pay attention to social media. She's just not up on these things. Maybe she doesn't realize the implication of what all lives matter. Yeah. And all all of the meaning wrapped up in all lives matter. But I mean, if you don't know by now, right. And your sister is Serena Williams. Like, the idea behind All Lives Matter is all well and good. But that's not how it's being used to diminish and undercut and attack really important sociopolitical movements in the U.S. Well, of course. I mean, like, Black Lives Matter needs to exist because it's not abundantly clear that Black Lives do matter in our legal and political system. Of course, All Lives Matter. Like, of course they do. We get that. All Lives Matter was invented by racists and the right wing to undermine the work of Black Lives Matter. Yes, to undermine a racial justice movement that came up organically out of some really tragic and horrifying shit perpetrated against black citizens by police departments. I, I don't know what else to say other than I am once again disappointed. <laughs> I definitely hear you and... I myself part like hesitate to beat up on Venus because of who I am. Who are like, you? Who I am racially, right? Oh. As a white man, I I'm not going to go hard on this because this is just this is not my fight. This is I'm not going to tell a black person how she should view racial politics in the United States. Of course I have my own opinions, but you mean you're not one of those white gays that because you are gay that trumps everything right. and gives you license to say right. like, whatever I, the fuck like you want? Like, I know oppression. <laughs> I'm gay. Like, you know? No, that's not me. That is just not. But, you know, like a lot of people, I have an idea of how racial politics should be done better in this country. Well, not the, this country, my country. Mm-hmm. But... I'm not going to sit, stand here on the soapbox and talk over black people and tell them that I'm more right than them, you know? Okay. Girl, bye. 
Ooh, who are we? Who are we bidding farewell and adieu to this week? Alvida Zane, <laughs> adieu to sashay away. Get the fuck <laughs> out my life. Now that you mention it, when did anyone ever tell Dan Evans to Shantae you stay? <laughs> How was he sashaying if we like never Shantae'd him? Like you said, a face only a mother could love. <laughs> Did I? That's funny. You did, did say, I say that. that. You did say I'm that. I'm funny. <laughs> <laughs> so Daniel Evans from Birmingham admitted to testing positive for cocaine use. And, you know, this seems to be popular among tennis players, doesn't it? I'm so in the dark on drug use. Like, I feel like everybody out there is doing drugs except for me. Listen, it <laughs> seems that everybody 25 and under is doing cocaine. Yeah, coke is very big right now. It is like Miami Vice up in here. Like, I'm continually shocked by how pervasive it is. <laughs> Not just in yeah. popular, popular culture and sports, but in people that we know. <laughs> like, didn't you know Stevie Nicks almost lost her goddamn nose? <laughs> that's not a joke <laughs> okay anyway dan evans assembled a press conference a, a pretty quick one straight to the point and said listen back in april in barcelona i tested positive for cocaine i fucked up uh i'm not gonna make up any bullshit story i did this and now i shall suffer the consequences so points for that mm -hmm. definitely i don't like the guy but points for that, because I want it on the record that I think Richard Gasquet's Pamela story is total bullshit. Like, totally made up. Kissing Pamela? Yeah. It, this fictional woman named Pamela, who he kissed in a club, and the the cocaine got from her lips to his bloodstream, and... Like, how? <laughs> and so, he was, uh, he was given a 12-month ban, which was eventually... His sentence was commuted... After about two and a half months, because they believed his story. Really, like, the only people in the world who did. But Dan Evans is provisionally suspended. He faces, uh, what, up to two years? Uh, people are, I'm journalists are saying he will probably get two years. Which I think is absolutely ridiculous. It's Personally. It's kind of silly. Because, is it really a performance-enhancing drug? And then people are like, well, have you seen a cokehead running? <laughs> Yeah, but but it was out of competition. Yeah. And how long do the effects really last? One of the more high-profile cases as well as Martina Hingis at the end of her yes. second... Who did serve... Her first comeback. ...full two years. Yes. And it was highly embarrassing. Well, I mean, she had just she just retired, essentially. Mm -hmm. She was like, yep, coke, bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is Europe. <laughs> I tweeted that, let Dan Evans be a reminder to be better people and nicer to others. So that when our mistakes do come, they're met with compassion, not pitchforks. Right. I think that's a really good point. Because Dan Evans went all over telling anybody who would listen how Aliaj Bedene should not be playing Davis Cup. Mm -hmm. He That he's not British. That, oh, I like the guy, but he just really shouldn't be playing for the UK. Doing his best Brexit drag. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, he just couldn't stop talking about it. And that was a time when they were similarly ranked in the in the rankings, when it was clear that he was protecting also his own bread on the right. table. Right. right. That he could have lost his spot to Bedene. Mm -hmm. The whole thing makes me wonder, like, how many chances does he need? 
he was a, a famous partier all like all through his junior days and through his pro career. The LTA withdrew his funding twice as a junior because they didn't think he was working very hard. I guess the lowest point was a night a few years ago where he went out the night before and just shit the bed in his match at Wimbledon the next day. Uh, He even missed a match at a Futures or Challenger event, just didn't show up. So this guy has been given many, many chances to get his shit together. And over the past two years, he, he has. Like, he's rehabbed his ranking. He went in the top 100. Top the 100, top 50. yeah, top 50. He got to the fourth round at the French Open this year. And then he goes and does this. And, I mean, maybe we shouldn't pile on because this actually could be the end of his career. Because after two years, he'll be able to come back if if he gets suspended for that long. Who's going to be giving him wild cards? Is he going to be able to rebuild a career after this? I don't think the cocaine thing is that big of a deal. It's just dumb. It's dumb. It's stupid. What are you doing? You know you are tested throughout the year. But when you do have this misstep, fuck if I'm going to feel bad for you. Right. After all you've been carrying on and doing unnecessarily to hurt other people, you are a mean-spirited dude. Yeah. So while it's not a, a girl by as in by forever, because, <laughs> you know, it would be good for him to get his shit together and come back, live that good life or whatever. I guess. But I mean, like, you one can get their his shit together and go do something else. Yeah, but this is all on him is my point. Okay. I'm not going to be out here championing you, going to bat for you because you don't deserve it. No. No. On to what I hope to be the final girl buy for John McEnroe because we didn't even want to talk about this. We did not no. want to talk about this. We didn't because want to give it credence. We didn't want to make it even more about quote unquote news story than it's already been, even though it shouldn't be. I don't want to help sell his book. Like if one person goes out and buy his buys his book because of us, I'm going to be very upset. <sighs> so John McEnroe Apparently, a part of his book, he needs to share his opinions on every old thing. On Richard Williams, how Richard Williams is weird and makes stuff up, which, I mean, like, we already know. About how Venus and Serena broke so many barriers, but they went too far. Literally, they went too far by being too good. Right, but his argument is that he likes when the titles are more spread around, so he got tired of them being too good at what they do. How is that a complaint? Talking about how she's probably the greatest female tennis player ever, mm-hmm. but she probably wouldn't even beat the 700th ranked male player. Mm-hmm. John, well, you know even... what? You know what? John probably wouldn't be better than the 700th ranked tennis commentator, but yet there he is, <laughs> still being given a microphone to comment on these fucking oh, matches. Oh, God. Where to even start? You know, the way I was raised is that when you go do a job, you come prepared and do your very best. And John McEnroe is the opposite of that in his commentating career. He does not prepare. He does not watch tennis, men's or women's, and he doesn't do his best. Nor does he give a fuck about trying at all. No. It's just, it's sad. I didn't even want to give it breath. I didn't want to waste my college degrees on it. But... There are a lot of very smart people on tennis Twitter who are wasting their college degrees on this. You know, <laughs> and not wasting, because this stuff does need to be shouted down. 
And you know who else is talking about it? And which is why we will be talking about it right now, because 10 minutes before we went to air, Miss Serena Williams went and gathered Yo. John McEnroe <laughs> and dragged <laughs> his ass. Yes. All over the floor. And she usually keeps quiet about these things because she's too important. I quote, Dear John, I adore and respect you, but please, please keep me out of your statements that are not factually based. That was a nice, cute statement. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you realize there was another tweet. Lo, there's more. <laughs> another tweet where... Can I say this one? Oh. Okay, you, you can do it. It's good. And I quote again. I've never played anyone ranked there, nor do I have time. Respect me and my privacy as I'm trying to have a baby. Good day, sir. Good day, sir. You have been you have been shown the door. Nobody sent for you, but they will send you home. Take your old ass and sit down in your chair. Like Serena There is absolutely no point to be talking about what Serena would be doing against somebody, some man ranked however many places. That is a useless argument, and it doesn't prove or disprove anything other than for these men to feel better about themselves. And the only function it has is to degrade and diminish everything that she's accomplished as a singular, iconic athlete and pop culture icon. That's all it is. Mm. And... Like, Serena has not asked to play male players. She hasn't said that she's better than men. She has no interest. She has nothing to gain from comparing herself to male tennis players. So why? Like, why do you bring it up? Because then you open the door for all these hotep motherfuckers sitting there on Twitter saying, yeah, Serena's great and whatever, but, like, she couldn't beat my old-ass grandpa and he's in a wheelchair. Like... It also opens. She never fucking asked. No, and it also <laughs> opens the door yet again for all these people to be making these jokes. Like somebody in my timeline last night, and I had to send him through the door and then block his ass <laughs> because he's telling me like, "Oh, are we even sure that Serena is a, a woman? Is there a test mm-hmm. for that?" Wow, I never heard that before. You think your opinion is valid? But these dudes like masculinity is so fragile is so fragile it's like aluminum foil i mean why are you so concerned if you know like you know that men are better that you are a better athlete than the best woman in the world you know these things you call yourself an alpha why are you so concerned then why do you need to prove it because you're not proving it masculinity is not real that's why it's fragile It is a performance. It must be continually performed. It is performative. The performance constructs what it is. There is no such thing as masculinity. Do you know it's one of my favorite moments in life? Which puts into play this whole idea that you're talking about as as masculinity being performative. Mm -hmm. And how fragile men are when it comes to their own sense of identity. I'll be like queening out somewhere. And I see reactions from men who are like, uh, Mm -hmm. oh, and I just want to say, like, what of it? (laughs) Like, shall we go and have an athletic competition right now? Because I will fucking like drag your ass every which way. (laughs) And like, that's something that I can do because I'm good at sports. Fine. Mm. You know, that's not like a universe, a universal thing. 
for a lot of people. But in that instance, it just goes to show how like, fickle these men are. These men are with how they they view what a man is, mm-hmm. right? Like a man is what you've been conditioned to think a man is. It's not a real thing, right? And these things they rear their head in in unexpected ways every single day when you think you've unlearned something and we as men grew up as men regardless of our sexual orientation we had to unlearn things we had to learn that we are not the center of the universe i did yeah (laughs) you know the thing is these ideas are not natural so justice isn't natural but masculinity is also not natural so I had there was a lot that I had to unlearn as a man to to become open. And when Serena is, people are like, "Well, maybe why is Serena responding to this?" Like this, this bullshit opens up so much more bullshit that she has to deal with. It opens up the whole business of what her body looks like, about her herself being too masculine, thought to be too masculine. Well, is it that she's not masculine enough to compete with men, or is that she's too masculine to compete with women? Right. Can this woman catch a break? Is there anything that she can do that will not be just a boiling pot of fuckery? And uh, our friend Lou Fefe on Twitter wrote some really smart stuff about this that I don't even really want to summarize because he says it way better than I can. But the fact that men who demean Serena have to always highlight the masculine about her. And how that is tied inextricably with her race. And that white women are not treated in the same way. Like did, And I saw this on Twitter too. Did anybody ever ask Steffi Graf if she could beat the 700th ranked player in the world? Her greatness was accepted as mm, great. Right. And that was enough. And I mean, yes, white women have been belittled because they weren't as good as men. We saw, I mean, Billie Jean King made it into spectacle and made it success. I mean, it it was a success story for the fledgling women's tour. But I don't think it's fair to say that white women are safe from that comparison, but it looks different. And white women are expected, are sort of given more, are sort of treated with kid gloves. Whereas Serena is expected to be all things to all people. Um, her greatness is tied to her masculinity, right? But that masculinity that we supposedly see in her is not good enough to compete with men. Who, like, whoever brought up the idea that she should compete with men? Why is male sports the pinnacle? And then we have her masculinity being used as a talking point for whether or not she as a woman is desirable in society mm-hmm. and also by other tennis players. We've talked about this before. Like women's sport is seen as inferior because women are smaller and are not as fast and don't serve as hard and don't run the hundred meters as fast as men do. Why does that make men's sports naturally superior? That's like, a, like, like that's a natural law. How that's a social construct. Of course, that's this idea that's of cultural. higher, faster, stronger as the the metric for judging athletic greatness mm. is 
It's a fallacy. It's something that's made up. And the fact is that a woman will just never be able to run as fast as the fastest man. That's a physiological difference. Breaking news. <laughs> right. right. Like this is this is not new. But it should not be used as a weapon to diminish the accomplishments of these great women athletes. I'm sitting here wondering why a lot of smart people are saying very smart, thoughtful things to this nincompoop, to this man who delights in his ignorance, who celebrates it, who's paid for it, who four times a year we're allowed to relish in it. It's not about him. It's about the discourse at large. These changes will not come about by the destruction of John McEnroe as a public figure. Right. Right. Like this. But this, it would be nice. It would, it would, it would give us satisfaction. I mean, in between him complaining about his ex-wives, talking about his 16 fucking children from all these different women, about his wife, Tatum O'Neill's drug use and her father's drug use and all these mistakes he's made, he finds the time to demean the greatest female women, female tennis players ever. Like, why? Just go away. Why should this person commentate a women's tennis match ever? Why was he before? Because this isn't the first time. It's been a, a, a thread throughout these past 20 years. In one day, he says Serena's the greatest, but, you know? The bottom line here is he's trying to sell his book. So do not go and buy his book. <laughs> that is the biggest right. bottom line for this. Because that's your, that's your resistance. That's your main point of resistance for this issue. Do not buy that fucking book. And secondly, keep talking about it. Even better if you don't bring his name up. But these are things where, yes, we should be going to bat for Serena. And she's given us permission by her letting you know that this is an issue that she does not appreciate. Mm-hmm. Because really, she said what we all were thinking. She's just at home trying to have a baby. Just trying to be pregnant living her life and she's still making headlines because this guy does some bullshit like keep her out of it that's the end of our very first girl bye segment thanks again to dima ayash i think this is someone that we'll keep going forward mm-hmm. yeah i like it it's kind of like the rant but it's kind of like specific. see what happened was mm-hmm. we'll have to get more particular with how we use them <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's something else in our arsenal we're going to finish the episode with something we like and dislike. You still haven't come up on the agenda with something you dislike. The like I'm taking oh, this time around. Oh, okay. There's something I really, really like. We were just at the Toronto Pride Parade yesterday. And last year, we were kind of ticked off that we weren't able to go. It's not that we forgot to book off from work or whatever. Like It just didn't work out with our schedules. Justin Trudeau last year was the first sitting prime minister of Canada to ever march in the Toronto pride parade. And when we heard that he was going to be doing it again this year, we're like, yes, we are going to be there Mm -hmm. because that is something in this political climate of North America, of the world with the orange one in office in your country. Like (laughs) it meant a lot to witness Justin Trudeau march and, with his family. With, his, with family, his wife and his children. At the front of the parade, smiling from ear to ear, the entire route, waving nonstop and telling everybody with whom he made eye contact with happy pride. 
and looking genuine as fuck mm-hmm. when he said it. And marching alongside the Aboriginal National Chief who marched in the Pride Parade for the first time in Canada. It was, uh, I mean, not to be too sappy, but a show of maybe what Canada can be. Mm-hmm. It isn't quite there, but what Canada might be. And he also was wearing rainbow socks with Happy Eid written in Arabic on them. And the cynical person, which you are, and you've said it, mm. that, you know, something you... And it's part of being a critical person, you know, having a critical mind's eye on, on the world. That he's doing the most <laughs> to get as many well, positive PR clicks. Just like, Justin loves the photo op. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not a secret. I read that he took a play out of Obama's playbook by having his own personal photographer with him at all times to mm. then disseminate these photographs. So yeah, there is there is a cynical element of this. Mm-hmm. But I will take it when the alternative is the White House in the United States completely ignoring the fact that Pride Month exists mm-hmm. and wiping also... gays from all the literature on government websites, essentially. Yes, and also ignoring Ramadan for the first time in 20 years, which is a statement, is a very bold statement in itself. It's very clear where this White House falls. And in contrast, it's very clear where Trudeau's government falls. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I will take that any day of the week. What is something you dislike? It's... Very strange that I'm having trouble finding something I dislike. Am I, have I just been swept up in the the pride positivity? Because I usually don't have a problem. I would say the coverage of Black Lives Matter at the parade is something I dislike. Because we were, we were there yesterday. Black Lives Matter was in the parade. We had actually, like, it's it's very long, right? So we actually went to eat at this restaurant right on the parade route. And we could see it from the window. And then I looked to the TV and it said Black Lives Matter uh, disrupts. disrupts the parade at Young and College. And so the TV has them standing there in silence for, I don't know, one minute and then continuing to march. Which wasn't strange because the parade itself kept stopping and starting as it got backed up, right? So it wasn't exactly a disruption. The issue was that they didn't register and they came anyway. This and is on the back of them stopping the parade last year to get, like, certain measures. Well, yes. Last year, it was a purposeful disruption. They stopped the parade, came with a list of demands for the head of Pride Toronto. He signed them after some deliberation, and then the parade went on. So that was, that was a, a political action that ended up being successful. One of them being that uniformed police should not be marching in the parade. And... It worked. And those, shockingly. those police took themselves to New York City to march in the New York Pride Parade as their means of resistance. Yes, they were invited by the NYPD to march in Pride, New York. So rather than think about why your city doesn't want you to march in the parade, you just take your ass down to New York and march in their parade. And I really hope that my tax money did not pay for that. I want to see the receipts there. The literal receipts. <laughs> anyway, the of course the news cameras followed Black Lives Matter the entire way that they marched in the parade. And this year it was they held signs 
that said, don't forget that we too are queer. Um, there were there was another sign about how basically we invented this, and and so the argument was that black queer and trans people have always been at the forefront of gay liberation movements that their actions basically created the conditions for pride to exist so we and can't crash black, a party that we invented not just black queer people but the civil rights movement as right. the precursor right. to all these other liberation movements in north america mm. so um the coverage was obviously gross and sensational and so that's something that i dislike because the action itself was not um what's the word basically people are mad because they didn't rsvp like it the action itself wasn't disruptive it was obviously created to garner a lot of media attention which is what political movements do and what black lives matter is good at and what they need to be good at to get their message across. But like, it's just like, we don't have time for this shit. And straight people's opinions on it do not matter to me. That like is what, nobody asked you. That is what I dislike most. Casually at work, I asked this one woman if she was going to the parade this year. And she said, you know, well, I would like to go, but I do not like what's going on with the police. I wish I could go to New York City and march with them there. I'm like, well... Oh, good to know. I'm moving on now because I do not give a fuck what you think about I know. this issue. So take your ass to New York. Like, like, the thing is, this is not your party. Like, this is black queer people telling you how they feel. This is black queer people telling you how they feel disenfranchised within the so-called gay community. Something of which you have no frame of reference. So do not be then telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing in that forceful of an opinion to me as a queer person as well. Like, how fucking aloof are you mm. in your privilege? Anyway, pride is political. Mm. It needs to stay political. Oh, the other thing I dislike is, I know, like, complaining about the corporate floats is a little bit old, but Walmart comes by? What the fuck? You you <laughs> want me to sit here and shake my ass to Walmart? <laughs> like, is your pride intersectional or what? And you weren't even doing the most with your float. Like, what about it was fun? It's like even. your ugly-ass logo with some rainbow on it. Like, you need to do better than that. Like, the winner's float came by, and they had changing rooms in the colors of all the rainbow, and <laughs> people dancing their asses off in front of them. Like, yes, Oh, I, that was winner's? It was, I think, winner's home sense, like, the company that oh, owns yes. all of them. Like, yes, I will go and change in that changing room. <laughs> like, that looks like fun. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. And then there was a crest float. And they're like handing out, they're samples throwing out samples of toothpaste. toothpaste and like, bitch, get out of my way. I need my goddamn toothpaste. And every, she's she's like yelling, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Give me some love. And I'm like, are we supposed to be cheering for Crest or love? I'm so confused Like, right bitch, now. I have very specific dental needs. And it's like. That Crest cannot Like, fill. I'm sorry, I use Colgate, so I'm not going to scream for you right now. <laughs> but also like, I'm in pride. I really really don't care about toothpaste right now like that's <laughs> not what this is about <laughs> on that note i'm jonathan you can find me on twitter at tennis underscore john i'm james i'm at elliot jmr two l's two t's the podcast is on twitter at the body serve as well as on instagram at the body serve till next time <laughs>